0: Welcome to the Election Ride Home for Tuesday, February 11th, 2020. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, with a summary of election news. Today, the takeaways from New Hampshire where Sanders won yesterday, how black and Latino voters still need to weigh in on the nomination, and now there are eight as three low-performing candidates exit the race. It's 10 days to the Nevada caucuses, 17 days to South Carolina's primary, 20 days until Super Tuesday, and 265 days until the general election. And here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. The New Hampshire primary was held yesterday, and goodness gracious, the mechanics of it went just fine. Results started appearing on time, and no irregularities were reported. It quickly became apparent that Senator Bernie Sanders had taken the night. With 98% of precincts reporting as I record this, Sanders received 25.7% of the vote, former South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg had a strong second-place finish with 24.4%, and Senator Amy Klobuchar grabbed 19.8%. Her performance in Friday's debate seems to continue to resonate, both in convincing undecided New Hampshire voters and in fundraising. Her campaign says it's now raised $2 million since Friday night. Senator Elizabeth Warren finished fourth with 9.2%, and former Vice President Joe Biden fulfilled his own prophecy and came in fifth with 8.4%. Billionaire Tom Steyer, House member from Hawaii Tulsi Gabbard, and entrepreneur Andrew Yang took 3.6, 3.3, and 2.8%, respectively. More on them and other lower performing candidates later in the podcast. Klobuchar's performance significantly outperformed polls, while Biden's was at the edge. The rest were right in line with aggregated, weighted predictions. In delegate math, the Associated Press says the top three finishers receive all the candy. Sanders and Buttigieg will receive nine pledged delegates each, and Klobuchar will get six. Despite Sanders' lead position, the spin began almost immediately. The Democratic Party is not partial to Sanders, Who has served in the Senate as an independent who caucuses with Democrats, and is an outspoken democratic socialist in terms of his political and economic orientation. Disregard that people in many European countries barely consider Sanders as left of center. Here, his advocacy for paid parental leave and vacation, universal health care, free higher education, and other policies remains relatively radical, though much less so than just a few years ago. Despite high rates of employment, wage stagnation and rapidly growing inequity, along with huge increases in housing costs among nearly all major cities, have made his message resonate across a broader political spectrum, including among younger people left behind by earlier waves of financial prosperity that lifted their parents and grandparents. Sanders' leftward tilt strikes fear in the heart of party centrists and some who believe themselves merely pragmatic, as they think Trump can exploit enough Americans' fear of a socialist boogeyman in just the right states to win the Electoral College map, even if Trump once again falls far short in the popular vote. As David Graham writes in The Atlantic, Democrats, especially young ones, are growing more favorable towards socialism, a term that's rather vague in most polls. But among Americans at large, a recent NBC News Wall Street Journal poll found that a slight majority, 53%, held a negative view of socialism versus 19% whose views were positive. Capitalism polls much better, 52% for and 18% against. And in a second poll, 53% of respondents told Gallup they would not vote for a socialist for president, end quote. Sanders, however, had a strong message of unity in the face of his win. This victory here is the beginning the end for Donald Trump. We're going to Nevada, we're going to South Carolina, we're going to win those states as well. No matter who wins, and we certainly hope it's going to be us, we're going to unite together. We are going to unite together and defeat the most dangerous president in the modern history of this country. The narrative that emerged in media reports almost immediately last night was that Sanders lost by not winning big enough. His nearly 26% of the total is the lowest winning percentage in New Hampshire primary history. When he beat former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton in New Hampshire in 2016, he took 60% of the vote, to Clinton's 38% out of 250,000 votes cast. Vermin Supreme received 0.1% or 260 votes. This year, almost 300,000 votes have been counted so far. 2016 was an off-incumbent year, so somewhat more residents voted for the Republican primary, 284,000, to the 250000 cast for the Democratic one. Trump took the win that year with 35.3%, 20% above the second-place finisher. This time around, the Democratic race remained incredibly crowded, but what commentators note is that Sanders' moderate competitors in the second, third, and fifth positions scored a total of 52.6% yesterday, while he and Warren captured 34.9% together. A few headlines last night mentioned Buttigieg's second-place finish, a remarkable rise from predictions before Iowa, and Klobuchar's huge surge to come in third, but omitted Sanders altogether. On Tuesday night, Klobuchar said to supporters, quote, Hello America, I'm Amy Klobuchar and I will beat Donald Trump, end quote. I'd argue that Iowa and New Hampshire may not determine who wins the nomination, and I'll get more into that in a minute, but they might show who loses it. Klobuchar's Mentum, as it's been labeled, doesn't necessarily presage a continued rise. But Biden's poor performance in the first two states is deflating. As The New York Times' Lisa Lehrer and Shane Goldmacher write, quote, If winning is contagious, losing can be an even more infectious campaign disease. It erodes support, money, and confidence in a sudden rush of voter and donor panic. And Mr. Biden now faces more than two weeks, an interminably long stretch, until the primary on the calendar, his advisors have long circled as his political firewall South Carolina's, end quote. Biden still mostly leads in national polls, but these are bad signs. Warren's star had fallen from a lofty perch from the middle of 2019, so the votes received in the first two states don't represent a rethink the way Biden's results do. Warren was a strong fundraiser in 2019, captured a lot of attention, and is raising money on the back of needing to get her message out into the next two early states and then Super Tuesday. She's got a 1,000-person staff working on that massive delegate blowout less than three weeks away. In a 2,000-word memo Warren's campaign manager distributed to staff and supporters yesterday, he wrote, quote, "...the process won't be decided by the simple horse race numbers and clickbait headlines. That's never been our focus. Our focus is on building a broad coalition to win delegates everywhere." End quote. I should probably have more to say about Buttigieg, but it's very hard to find anything in particular that he did that led to his current rise, except present an alternative to Biden. His strength in Klobuchar's seems to be coming in these first two states from people who ultimately have been turned off by Biden the more they get to know him. Buttigieg has done very well in two very white states, and moderates as a whole, as I noted earlier, seem to have a majority. The question is whether Super Tuesday coalesces around one moderate candidate in Sanders, or if we continue to have three, four, or five people remaining viable, even as Bloomberg arrives on the scene to woo moderates and independents. Oh, and one more takeaway. That terrifying number I told you about at 538 a few days ago it's gotten higher. The likelihood of Sanders winning the majority of pledged delegates by the convention is now 37% in the site's prediction model, but the no one having a majority has steeply climbed up to 35%. That could result in either a quickly resolved brokered convention or one that's debilitating to Democrats. One scenario is that Sanders performs well and Warren remains in and moves her support to put him right over the top and secures a cabinet position in the process. It's harder to see moderates join together, but I don't think after Super Tuesday, we'll have three moderates in the race. As a Democratic strategist, Leah Daughtry told the New York Times, speaking of Biden, quote, you've got to blow it out of the water in Nevada and South Carolina to convince small and large donors you continue to be worth the investment. You need that money because Super Tuesday is three days after South Carolina. You don't have a lot of time to pivot, end quote. Daughtry ran the 2008 and 2016 Democratic National Conventions. She knows of what she speaks. Imagine this Valentine's Day story is you. You're parked outside the restaurant where you're meeting your date in 10 minutes, Glancing in the mirror, you notice your wrinkles and large under-eye bags. You rummage through your bag, thinking, where's your secret weapon? And there it is, Plexiderm. You apply the clear serum under your eyes, and boom, two minutes later, you start seeing the under-eye bags and wrinkles disappearing in front of your eyes. You'll look years younger. Plexiderm is the clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags in minutes. It's the Valentine's Day gift you give yourself. Go to tryplexiderm.com and use my code VOICES for 50% off a full-size bottle of Plexiderm plus an additional $10 off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning code VOICES. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee Visit TryPlexiderm.com today and use code VOICES at checkout. That's TryPlexiderm.com, code VOICES. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. As Klobuchar rises, it's likely we'll see an increasing focus on her time as a county prosecutor and her weak support among black voters. A story emerged just a few days ago about a case her office handled and that she supervised in which a black teenager, Mayan Burrell, was convicted of shooting an 11-year-old girl, also black. The Associated Press reported, quote, No gun, fingerprints, or DNA were ever recovered, and the case against Burrell relied on the testimony of a teen rival who offered conflicting stories when identifying the trigger man who was standing 120 feet away, mostly behind a wall. The story also notes that a police investigator offered cash for information, a prison inmate admitted he was the shooter, and Burrell was shown to be elsewhere when the shooting occurred. On the TV program The View yesterday, co-host Sonny Hostin, also a former prosecutor, grilled Klobuchar. How do you defend something like that to someone like me, who is the mother of a black boy, a black teenager? This case would be my worst nightmare. Well, Sunny, I'll start with this. I've been very clear, all of the evidence needs to be immediately reviewed in that case. Uh, The past evidence and also any new evidence that has come forward, I've called for that. And I think you and I both share that background. And I have always believed that a job of a prosecutor is to protect the innocent and convict the guilty, but protect the innocent has to be key. As her star rises, we'll see more scrutiny of her record. On the voter preference side, a Washington Post-Ipsos poll a month ago found that no black voters picked her as their choice for the Democratic candidate, while 48% chose Biden, 20% Sanders, and 9% Warren. A more recent Monmouth poll spoke to relatively few black voters, but among them, Klobuchar received just 1% of support. Buttigieg also received negligible support in both polls. Which brings us back to Iowa and New Hampshire. Iowa's population is 86% non-Hispanic white by U.S. Census Bureau measures from 2017, 3.3% non-Hispanic black, and 6% Hispanic of any race. New Hampshire has a 1.3% non-Hispanic black population and 3.8% Hispanic of any race. Nevada, coming in next with caucuses on the calendar, has a population that is 9% non-Hispanic Black and 29% Hispanic of any race. South Carolina, the last early decision state, has a very small population that identifies Hispanic, but 27% is non-Hispanic Black. These states may provide more insight into how all candidates will do nationally, where the population is 12.3% non-Hispanic Black and 18.1% Hispanic of any race. Also nationally, 62% of Latino voters, as defined by Pew Research Center, identify with Orlean Democratic, 34% pick Orlean GOP. About 85% of Black voters identify or lean Democratic, just 8% indicate a GOP preference. While leading voices state that Sanders is too extreme, Warren is flailing, and only a centrist can unite the nation and win, Iowa and New Hampshire teach us more about fundraising and messaging than they do about how candidates will perform more broadly. Black and Latino voters are significant constituencies in several key states, and voter turnout among those communities will be critical for a Democrat to win the presidency. With seven or eight candidates having the money to continue through Super Tuesday, it's really only then that the true expression of a broader Democratic electorate will be heard. Don't get played and buy into the story that New Hampshire and Iowa are accurate predictors. Every election is different, and this year's Democratic race is distinct from any other in history. And then there were eight Last night, as the primary results started to come in from New Hampshire, Andrew Yang and Senator Michael Bennett both withdrew from the race to become the Democratic nominee. This morning, Deval Patrick joined them. Yang had remarkable staying power and had a fervent following. In some polls, his supporters were most unlikely by a large factor to say they would not support the ultimate Democratic nominee. But despite the funds he was able to raise and his ability to get on stage in several Democratic National Committee debates to spread his message, the poor showings in Iowa and New Hampshire led him to pull out. The fundraising math doesn't work at this point to compete if you haven't shown even the slightest of possibility in early states and in polls to prevail. Some pundits said Yang was auditioning for a role in the cabinet, which wouldn't be the first time, and several Democrats who already withdrew from the race will certainly be under consideration for cabinet posts should a Democrat prevail in November. You may have forgotten Bennett was in the race, as he never polled that well and didn't have a standout message. His most significant influence in the race was that his brother, James Bennett, is the editor of the New York Times opinion section. James recused himself from decisions around the presidential election when his brother entered the race. Former governor of Massachusetts, Deval Patrick, entered the race late and built his strategy in these early states around South Carolina. With that primary several days away and his polling not showing a breakout performance, this is the time he chose to exit the competition. So far, 20 Democratic candidates have dropped out of the race. Congressperson Tulsi Gabbard, one of Hawaii's House members, remains in. She is the last person of color in the running. She went all out in New Hampshire, hoping to have an impact among the many independent voters in that state. And a seventh place finish in a crowded race without national name recognition isn't nothing. She said last night to her supporters, quote, No matter what happens here tonight, I want you to know that we have already been victorious, End quote. In addition to Gabbard, seven other candidates remain the top five in Iowa and New Hampshire, plus billionaires Tom Steyer and Mike Bloomberg. As I discussed yesterday, Bloomberg is rising rapidly in national polls as he spends vast sums on advertising. However, his baggage from his time as mayor and in running his company are starting to catch up with him as well. There is no news from Iowa today. And that's the election roundup for today. I am your host, Glenn Fleischman. You can find this podcast on Twitter at Election Podcast or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Election Ride Home. I'm also on Twitter at Glenn F. That's G-L-E-N-N-F, like Frank. Tune in again tomorrow for the latest election updates. Thanks for listening, and have a pleasant afternoon and evening.